Chair, conference, fellow social democrats, uh, it's good to be back in Church House, which feels like home. And we meet at an important time, as Valerie said earlier, um, before a general election. Uh, so I'd like you to imagine, if you will, the plight of the ordinary British voter in the ordinary British election. You get your polling card, you go to the polling station, you get your ballot paper, and you go into the booth, and you get your pencil at the ready to put a cross against, against what? It's at that moment that the dreadful choice before you becomes apparent. A list of political parties that have beggared the country, none of which share your values. And that's the outstanding and appalling fact about British politics today. The establishment parties are simply not good enough. So, in all humility, I'd like to use this speech to do a, a dear voter speech, basically, and offer the British voter some advice for the next election. Just eight points. So, point one, vote positively and vote freely. The right to vote was won against massive resistance. Voting is a right and a duty, but it's also an opportunity. Quote, for people in this country who don't have money or power in industry, it's the vote that is their main safeguard for the future. Anyone? No? Tony Benn, yes, Tony Benn in 1975. And Benn was right. And the EU referendum in 2016 proved he was right. And the reaction to that vote proved he was right. So vote positively. If you believe in something, vote for it. If, like us, you believe the railways and the utilities should be in public ownership, vote for it. And remember that no vote is wasted. Not even the 79 votes that Auburn War received as the dog lovers candidate against Jeremy Thorpe in the 70s were wasted. Remember that? They weren't wasted, they, they sent a powerful message that it's wrong to shoot people's pets. I'm actually, I'm being flippant, but you get the point. No vote is wasted, vote positively. Point two, don't vote Tory. <laughs> I, <clears throat> I, I, I can't stress this enough. Because the Tories see this country not as a country, they see it as a shop. That's, what, that's how they look at it. Is that fair? Yes. We want to be fair in the SDP. So let's look at the evidence. Public assets, which we already owned, sold off. British gas, British coal, British steel, British energy, British rail, British ports, Royal Ordnance, 10 separate water companies, 12 separate electricity boards, the Severn Bridge, the Royal Mail, I could go on. My point is that many of these entities are now under foreign control. Utilities turned into a casino without any thought for the rivers or the balance of payments. As Harold Macmillan said at the time, first the Georgian silver goes, 
then all the nice furniture, and then the canalettos go. He was right. But fencing off national assets doesn't stop there, because our key industrial firms have been picked off one by one by foreign competitors. Again, I could go on. Cadbury's, Roundtree, Macintosh, ICI, Pilton, Chorus. And I've said it before that no sensible state does this. South Korea doesn't do this. Singapore doesn't do this. Japan doesn't do this. So why do we do it? Well, selling the family farm is in the DNA of the Tory party. They are the asset strippers of British politics. And remember, remember, this was the party that traded away our fishing waters, which is like, like having an orchard and letting people come in and take the apples, literally. In fact, allowing the country to be run by the Tories is a bit like asking children to be looked after with someone with the parenting skills of Jean-Jacques Rousseau or, or Karl Marx. Unwise. And the point is, this is not conservatism of any kind. It's low base spivery and it's unpatriotic. A, a, a little anecdote. I, I pop up and down from, from Newcastle to, to London. I work about two days a week here. Uh, and a couple of months ago, I was in King's Cross Station. I needed to, waiting for my train, I needed to fill my water bottle. The tap on the first floor was, uh, was out of order. And I said, where is there a water station? And I said, in the corner of King's Cross, somewhere deep in the corner, there is a water station. I got to it. And to my dismay, uh, you needed to download an app. <laughs> Honestly, you and, and this wasn't a water station. It was a machine for trading data for drinking water. That's what it was. And I would ask, who allows this to happen? And what's true for the water station is true for the railway. The railway's been chopped up into little bits, and foreign states run it, and it doesn't occur to the people that govern us that a railway should be a thing of national pride. It doesn't occur to them. A wise industrialist once said, if you screw the workers, you screw the company. And I think, basically, on this, if you screw the people, you screw the country. That's how it is. <laughs> Has anyone read the, the Luciadas by Luis Vaz de Camões, the Portuguese poet? How, how can I lead the party when you're not up to speed with your epic poetry? Uh, anyway, it's a magical poem, uh, and it's about the age of discovery. And he conjures up these images of caravellas traveling, traversing shipless oceans. Beautiful. Anyway, there's a line in it where Camoys writes, and if there had been other lands to discover, we would have found them. I think if there was anything left to sell, the Tories would have sold it. Yeah. Point three, don't vote for anyone that doesn't know what a woman is. Yeah. Now, now, 
Two years ago on this very stage, I mocked Rachel Reeves on this, uh, but the confusion continues. Nick Ferrari poses the question, so a woman can have a penis. Ed Davey replies, well, quite clearly. <laughs> Andrew Marr asks the question, is it transphobic to say that only women have a cervix? Keir Starmer replies, it's something that shouldn't be said. It's not right. <laughs> what a mess. What a mess. Now, do, but do you really think that Starmer and Davy can't actually tell Arthur from Martha? Do you really think they can't? Or are they too cowardly to say what's true? Actually, actually, to be fair, Ed Davey is a Liberal Democrat, so he probably doesn't know. He probably doesn't know. But, but seriously, treating transgender people with dignity and respect does not require the deconstruction of the meaning of the word woman or the denial of women's rights. Trans women are not women. If they were, the prefix would not be required. What we need is respect for reality. And the reality is that some people, have trans, some people have gender dysphoria, but there are also boundaries in sport and spaces that need to be respected on the basis of sex-based rights, and they must come first. And that's reasonable, which is why it's the STP's policy. Whether they know it or not, Starmer and Davey are part of a revolution, I think, against observation, objectivity, reason, basically a war against the Enlightenment foundations of the West. And this is serious. This is serious. They must be defeated, and they will be defeated by mobilizing the majority who oppose it. That's how you do it. John Gray uh, put the opportunity perfectly, quote, I'm not going to do a South Shields accent, by the way, on this, but, but, but John Gray got it right. The left gave up the struggle against class inequality a generation ago, replacing it with self-serving poses of bourgeois identity politics. While liberals colluded with corporate capitalism in dismiss, dismissing the dying communities of post-industrial wastelands as retrograde sections of humanity, it's too late for progressives to regain working class support. Correct, it is too late. We'll see them at the ballot box. <laughs> Point four, elect national leaders, not charity workers. Quote, I think it's my job to maximize global welfare, not national welfare. Famously, that was Gus O'Donnell, former head of the civil service. Now, you might ask, how do you become head of the civil service? If you think like that. But this view is normal among the new elite. They're conditioned to criticize and repudiate Britain's past, which leads to a disposition, an attitude, if you like, of civilizational guilt, apology, atonement, self-effacement, Basically, it ends up in charity syndrome. That's what I call it. That's what you get. So instead of tackling our own problems, our elite rather pompously prefers missionary work. They think about Lagos when they should be thinking about Leeds. The Scottish NHS thinks about reparations when it should be treating Scottish people. 
This is because they see Britain not as a country. They see it as an NGO. And in this atmosphere, the idea of nation-state preference actually governing in the interests of your own citizens becomes impossible. National self-assertion collapses. The best example of this capitulation is the collapse of the national border. And yet the people that govern us have, seem to have no idea how dangerous this is. Many times in the SDP we ask ourselves, what's the solution to this or that? And I often ask myself, what would Lee Kuan Yew do? We wouldn't have an open border for a start. My point is, we've seen the tragic events in Israel, the chaos in Lampedusa and the war in Ukraine. The world is a very, very dangerous place. And the West is drunk on rights, but short on duty. What we need is protection. As Philip Kizzeli said recently, wanting the keys to your own house is the most natural thing in the world. And you can't have that if you have open borders. Anyway, I'm a Cold War kid. Uh, I quite like borders. <clears throat> Point five, don't divide us. I wish it weren't so, but we're actually going backwards. We've imported American race-based politics, and we didn't ask for this. It's not just the critical race theory which our institutions have lapped up. It's a general racialization of thinking has seeped into our, our discourse. And, and actually at the banal level, this is people saying things like that town or the countryside or Radio 3 is so white. You know, I mean, usually the people saying that are white. They're just playing for status. But it's not helpful at all. Sadiq Khan, whose officials think a white family can't represent real Londoners, is a specialist in this type of thing. And Labour's Annalise Dodds is another, keen to blame any racial disparity on uh, basically uh, systemic racism or, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's rent payments or health or mortgages, it's always blamed on systemic racism. This is simplistic nonsense, which Tony Sewell's CRED report uh, exposed, based on nostrums too brittle to withstand any proper scrutiny. The problem isn't uh, systemic it's, it, racism, it's systemic stupidity, actually. And it's, it's self-defeating, constantly attacking your own country as racist, the country that basically looks after you, that nurtures you. It's like cutting off the branch you're sitting on. And only a fool would do that, or, or someone that doesn't actually like the whole tree. I think that's the key to it. We want a more equal society, and if you deliberately divide people into opposing camps, something important, as I've said many times before, is lost. What is lost is the social solidarity that we all need to share. To share is a precondition to succeed. And on the question of building social solidarity, we must end our reckless addiction to mass immigration. Like any other addict, the dose this country requires to get its fix just goes up and up and up. We're now importing over a million people a year, which I think is a sure sign of a labor market in crisis. 
And by the way, plundering doctors and nurses from developing countries is certainly immoral. I've, I've worked uh, in a hospital in West Africa. If, if, if you remove nurses, kids don't get inoculated and they die. It's as simple as that. But this policy also disincentivizes training and lowers wages in this country. It must do on the economics. And meanwhile, over five million of our own uh, fellow citizens are effectively on the scrap heap, left on the scrap heap in out-of-work benefits. Can't go on like this. But the impact on, on social cohesion, I think, of, of rapid demographic change has barely been considered. There literally is no policy on this. Um, it's just neglect or, as I always call it, indifference. There's nothing on it. Uh, I think it's a fundamentally mistaken view, I think, to believe that the continuation of very, very high levels of immigration without any thought to integration will make community relations better. It won't. It just won't. On the contrary, it becomes more challenging. You look at the scenes in Manchester and London, or, or for that matter in, in Rotterdam or Sydney, of people openly celebrating a massacre of Israeli citizens. Utterly appalling. I think if we want to remain anything like a coherent society, a generation-long mass immigration pause is essential. It's actually a precondition. We need the space and the time to find ourselves again, to find a new us. But on the broader point, dear voter, there is no future in grievance politics for any of us, so don't vote for it. Point six, vote for conviction politicians. I gave a speech in London about six months ago. Um, it was the remnants of the Vote Leave campaign, very kindly asked me to speak. And the organizer said, very nice to have a conviction politician along. I said, I never thought of myself that way. But anyway, there you go. Um, in other words, vote for people who believe in a few things and will actually fight for them. So imagine a man who opposed the monarchy but takes a knighthood, who fought bitterly to prevent this country from governing itself but then can't do a press conference without standing next to a British flag, who became leader of his party by promising to take the utilities and the railways into public ownership but suddenly changed his mind. A man, in other words, that can't make any policy pledge without reversing it. And you know the man I'm talking about. And the point is this, when a person has views as flexible as Starmer's, how on earth does the public know what they believe, if they indeed believe anything at all? How would they know? They wouldn't. Don't vote for him. Point seven. Trade deficits matter. This is when all of you nod off and it's Clouston's banging on about trade again. Um, let me just say, you know I, I talk about this a lot, but it is critical. If you think we can run trade deficits of tens of billions year after year and not slide deeper into debt, you can't add up. 
it, this isn't some elaborate economic theory. It's just mathematics. It's just accounting. We just get poorer. It's beggar's day. All of the good things, transport, the NHS, education, roads, defense, pensions, are predicated on how this country makes its way in the world, how we earn a living. And the cretinous ramblings you hear, particularly from labor politicians, about spending cuts are meaningless unless you understand that trade, both internal and external, and the taxing of the proceeds of trade underpins all state spending. You can't tax a loss. You can borrow, but in the long run, you will spend what you earn. And, and on the other side, you have free trade purists who argue that our deficit is somehow a vote of confidence in UK PLC. They're just kidding themselves. It's like a crack dealer saying to their addict, no, I really believe in you, I really believe in you. Conservatives used to understand this. Quote, it is in fact a waste of time to consider at length where we stand as between the alternatives of free trade and protection. We're offered no such choice. We must choose between protection and one-sided free imports. And if this indeed be the choice, I am a protectionist. Anyone? No? F. E. Smith at Chatham in 1909. Uh, he was right. Um, Smith's quite an interesting figure, actually. I don't know if many of you have read about him. He's, he was a, a Tory Lord Chancellor, very clever lawyer in the Edwardian period, and was the master of Edwardian banter. And it's quite a nice story. He, um, like a lot of MP lawyers at the time, he practiced law at the Inns of Court in the morning and then would wander over in the afternoon to Parliament for the evening sessions later. Uh, and about halfway between Parliament and, um, and the Inns of Court uh, is one Whitehall place, which is the National Liberal Club. Remember, he's a Tory, but he used to pop into the Liberal Club to use the gentleman's facilities in case he got... Yeah. And he used to do this for years, and, and, and on one occasion the doorman stopped him and said, Sir, you are a member of the club. And Smith turned to him and said, What? You're a club as well? <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's Smith. But anyway, we've been getting trade policy wrong, I think, for 40 years. Many of our factories have closed as a result. Trade policy must serve the national interest, not ideology. It's about how, what it does for us. Now, we know, because we've published a good green paper on it called The End of Indifference, that this problem will only be cured when we start to care about what is made, where, and by whom. Now, I've got one more point to make to voters, but before I do, I have some thank yous and a very quick review of the year. It's been yet another very good year. After Wayne Dixon took Middleton Park in Leeds in 2022, my advice at the conference last year in Manchester was keep on going and win again. And we did, despite massive resistance by Labour and thousands of pounds spent on it. 
Emma Pogson Golden took the SDP's second seat on Leeds City Council in May, securing nearly 2,000 votes. But, but, actually, but actually, there was more to it than that because Emma worked uh, at a local school and as an employee of, that school, of Leeds City Council, she couldn't stand in a Leeds City Council election and be an employee. So Emma actually gave up her job at that school, a job she loved, to stand in Middleton Park for the STP and the community she loves. And if you want to know why the STP wins elections in Leeds, you have the answer there. Fantastic. In May, we fought uh, local council elections all over the country, and we contested three parliamentary by-elections uh, in the past year, and these are tough. Uh, Julian Yvonne stood in Stratford and Urmson in December during a postal strike and gained valuable experience for the Northwest region. In June, Steve Gardner stood in Uxbridge, gaining a very creditable sixth place out of 17 candidates. And John Waterton stood in Selby, getting our highest percentage vote in a by-election since 1989. Well done all. By-elections are tough. But you, <laughs> you, you don't get better at doing uh, by-elections by not doing them. It's tough. You've got to do them. Um, uh, finally, a few thank yous. Um, a thousand thanks to uh, Valerie, Robert, Paul, Dan, Ross, and Paula, the key office holders of the party, literally without whom. Thanks also to my colleagues on the National Committee, to all our candidates and campaigners and regional organizers throughout the country. Thanks to Michael Taylor, my co-presenter on Wednesday Night Fight Back. I enjoy those. Uh, thanks to all who've made donations for the party in the last year. Thanks to Paula and Cathy, authors of the forthcoming and excellent SDP Green, Green Paper on Agriculture. Thanks to Ollie for filmmaking. Thanks to Kin and William for technical assistance. And thanks to Rod and Patrick and Joanna Williams, journalists who are out and proud Social Democrats. Thank you. Special thanks to Steve and Simon and the London Branch for staging the conference, to our guest speakers and all of you for coming along. Thank you. And finally, thanks to the wider SDP all over, for Wendy's pottery, to the young Social Democrats, to Mr. Wheeler's tweetings. As a QPR fan, I would say we are the SDP. <clears throat> Um, so to my final and most important point to voters. Last year in Manchester we said, it can't go on like this. But it will, unless we do something about it. And the cure is to vote for a party which sees Britain not as a shop or a charity, but our home, a place we love, the place we were brought up in, and the place we care for. In other words, a homecoming. At the start of my speech, I talked about the plight of the ordinary British voter in the ordinary British election. But actually, for the first time, probably in a generation, 
the next election isn't going to be an ordinary election. Because for the first time, as I say, in decades, millions of people will get the chance to vote for the Social Democratic Party, a party that believes in the things that they believe in and will build the country that they want. We will offer a manifesto defined by our beliefs in the social market, which is history's favorite child. The family is the foundation of society, decent affordable housing in voting reform. The belief that industry matters, that you can't be a state without borders, that we must cure our twin addictions to debt and mass migration. And most importantly, that we must find a way of bringing this country together to find a new us. The, the SDP has never been and never will be in the angry corner of politics. You go elsewhere for that. We're not concerned with single issues or the selfishness of particular groups. Our mission is the concerns of the mainstream majority. That's where the real power of social democracy lies, in mobilizing that majority. Now, someone once said that you should do three things in life. You should uh, build a house, write a book, and stand for parliament. Uh, now, not everyone can build a house. And actually, I think Chris Hitchens was right when he said that everyone has a book in them and largely that's where it should stay. <laughs> but, but standing for Parliament, that, that's very possible. So I'm asking now for all hands on deck. If you can donate, please donate. We're not bankrolled by big business or, or unions, which is why we have our own voice. If you can help out, please do so. If you can stand for election, please step up. Next year, we aim to make history to get our best result in a generation, to re-establish the SDP as a truly national party once again. And that will be a homecoming for us and for the country. We have a wonderful chance here, all of us. Let's take it. Thank you.